When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com. SB Nation's home for Group of Five football. Joe Lodrigan and Eric Henry here with you once again. And uh, this week we are going to jump into, among other things, a little mailbag section where we answer some questions from you, the viewer. Uh, but Eric, how are you enjoying life at this particular moment in time? I cannot complain, my man. Yeah, it is what, May 12th years we're taping this this evening. And, dude, it has been a very weird, um, I don't want to say cool spell, because that'd be a little bit of a stretch, but um, this entire week's been nothing but the low 80s, and you can't beat that in Florida this type of year, this this time of year, excuse me. So, uh, yeah, man, cannot complain, hoping to make it out to the beach this weekend, um, hoping the Lightning are still in a playoff contention, and uh, Tom Brady's back. So, all is good here in the Sunshine State. Yeah, and uh, you were telling me off air a little bit. You were talking about uh, <laughs> uh, just you know general fitness stuff that that you do, and how I don't really have a plan for that either. But uh, it's perfect tank top weather, right? As a, it's state law to wear a tank top. You no, you put it as I've had to wear a tank top so much, so I've had to keep in shape. And I was just like, did he just say he had to wear a tank top? If there are any listeners, see, Joe lives in the Pacific Northwest. If there are any listeners who live in Texas, in, you know, the Carolinas, I won't use Arizona and the fact it's dry heat, but dude, it's 95 degrees out here 10 months out of the year. All right. Like we are all trying to get by just wearing as little clothing as possible. Um, A, just as Florida law by nature to wear as little clothing as possible and B, freaking hot. So yeah, man. Like those, those, you know, shirts with sleeves get a little uh, restricting when it's, uh, you know, dude. You hold on, time out, Joe. You've lived in Florida. You know, you take two steps outside yeah. the door and you're sweating from areas you didn't know you could sweat. Listen, when I lived in Florida, I was just like staying in the AC as much as humanly possible, or I was playing golf. And like, depending on where you're at in Lee County, most of the time you can't wear a tank top on the golf course. <laughs> I, I like how you threw that addendum in there as far as depending on where you're at because that is also very true oh <laughs> uh, good old florida um which i guess is probably a good place to start for our uh cusa questions that we got um from twitter let's start with this one uh what are the expectations for florida atlantic this season for me I'm going to say I think they go six and six this year, personally, to dive right into it. Uh, FAU was five and seven last year. I think they improve, but not by all that significant of a margin. They have a tough schedule this year with a road game at Purdue. They have an always tough ball club in UCF coming to Boca Raton. They have Charlotte in week one, and we know that program is looking for some redemption as well after the way that their season ended. So they have an uphill battle. And 
also like given all the offseason stuff that, that Willie Taggart's been facing, he obviously has something to prove too. Like if you're not winning and you're having, you know, issues off the field, which part of it did stem from players that uh, played for him under Florida Atlantic, like he's under a microscope this year. So they got to show some improvement and I think they will, but it won't be that much just based on how tough a schedule they have to play. Really quick, Joe, I, I'm not, you know, trying to be you know very specific as far as your wording there, but you said you believe they'll go six and six. What's your expectation though? I guess I'll rephrase this. What do you believe the expectation should be in Boca Raton given where the program was coming off of Lane Kiffin and, you know, Willie Taggart being a name coach, right? Like, can you, can you delineate between those two being two different questions, if that makes sense, Joe? Well, I mean, it's it's been two different teams since Lane Kiffin left. Like, yeah. it was yeah. – like, the way that they played under Lane Kiffin, I think, was is very different from how they've played under Willie Taggart thus far. And based on what I've seen out of the team now and the, the kind of performances that they've put up the last couple of years under Taggart, um, that's kind of what I'm basing this off of now. Now, granted, a lot can happen, and you know the teams that they have to play will, can you know deal with their own set of issues, which can lead to them not performing the way they should uh, they should expect. But um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm basing that expectation off of. I think, um, given the the time that they've had to, to gel a little more, I don't think they had too significant a roster turnover, at least when you compare it to some other. Uh, teams in the G5 and around CUSA, they should have a little more chemistry and improve a little bit. But again, I think the overall talent has taken a little bit of a dip since Sling Kiffin, to tie it back to your question. And again, you know, they got a tough stretch to start the first like six weeks of the year with Charlotte, Ohio, Southeastern Louisiana, which I think is a gimme for them, and then UCF and Purdue in back-to-back weeks. Okay, no, I mean, that's fair. And it's it's a very valid point you make as far as they are you know, two seasons removed from the Lane Kiffin era. I guess the reason in my mind, and maybe I'm a little close to the situation here being in Florida, is I absolutely think, and I'm sure we'll have Zach Weinberger on from the Palm Beach Post, who does a great job covering FAU on later on the offseason to kind of break down the two things, Joe. But I absolutely believe that the expectations in the minds of FAU fans, at least the ones that I hear from, definitely not six wins. They expect especially especially Joe, given the fact that Marshall and Old Dominion, two teams that they lost to last year, and Marshall, of course, being a, when there wasn't East Division, an East Division perennial powerhouse each year, with those two teams being gone, the expectation is that, all right, we should be right there with UAB to win this league. Um, In terms of my own expectation, I don't know, Joe, like, I, I guess I'm a little bit higher on them, given, listen, I don't think when you look at Charlotte, Ohio and Southeastern Louisiana, I don't think you look at FAU's roster and say, oh, well, they're out talented. That's just my mind. That's just my opinion. UCF. okay, I think that's a loss. Purdue. I think that's a loss, even though, you know, Purdue is kind of, you know, going through its own situation there. um, I think that's a loss. But then you look at the rest of the schedule. I'm just looking at it right here. I'll read it off. North Texas, Rice, UTEP, UAB. FIU, Middle Tennessee, Western Kentucky. The two teams, and to be really honest, I would say one out of that stretch there, once they get past UCF and Purdue, that in my mind, you say, okay, there's a team that probably has just as much talent, if not more, and is coming off you know, more success and equally good coaching staff, et cetera, is UAB. Everyone else, I'm just like, 
Okay, and that's not doubting or you know, throwing shade at Middle Tennessee, Western, UTEP, Rice, North Texas, but we've talked about it. Middle Tennessee's been, I don't want to say decimated, but they've lost plenty of people to the portal. Western Kentucky's going through transition right now, and even though they have very talented quarterbacks, we'll see what happen, what happens. FIU, uh, no need for me to you know belabor that. They haven't won a, a Division One game since in, in November twenty fourth, twenty nineteen. Um, yeah, excuse me, uh, F, FBS game, and not not Division One. Um, UTEP, still some questions. While they had a good year last year, Rice and North Texas again, you can find you know issues with, with those teams, Joe. So to give an overall record, I, I I think this has to be an eight win team in my mind. They very well might be. I think this is another point about the way that FAU football has performed over the last couple of years. In both 2021 and 2020, the two seasons that they've had Willie Taggart at the helm have ended the season with at least three consecutive losses. You go back to 2020, uh, lost in the Montgomery Bowl to Memphis, lost uh, in their regular season finale at Southern Miss, lost to Georgia Southern, um, had two games canceled, had a nice start to the season prior to that, um, but then obviously ended the season five and four, weird COVID year, blah, blah, blah. But then you get to 2021, and it's kind of a similar story. You look at the last game they played, lost to Middle Tennessee, and then before that, lost to Western Kentucky. Before that, lost to Old Dominion. Before that, lost to Charlotte. And before that, barely beat UTEP. So, like, historically, these Willie Taggart FAU teams have a really tough time closing the season. And I'm not saying that they definitely are not going to break that mold this year. I'm just saying if we're sticking to current patterns, that is my expectation for them is to hold to current patterns. But we'll see. No, I mean, I'll just toss it back to you on this. That's a very fair point you make, especially when talking about, and listen, I, I've talked about this podcast. I'm a fan of Willie Taggart. So I, I like Willie Taggart personally. I think, you know, people have their own opinion of him as a coach and how he's kind of shuffled around a little bit, but uh, and especially the way things happen at Florida State. I, I'm of the opinion that as we still see Florida State still trying to fix that situation, so it wasn't necessarily a, a Willie Taggart thing. But no, it, it's a fair critique that his teams have not closed well in the past two years. So that would be something that they'll have to uh, definitely have to conquer, no doubt. Yeah, and granted, my my perception of, of Willie Taggart as a coach is a little different based on being out here for the entirety of his brief stint at uh, the University of Oregon. And uh, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. There's there's enough people who have made entertaining content around that that I don't need to believe at the point. But anyway, uh, let's move on to this question from our good friend Joe Broback. Uh, is UAB just Alabama light in terms of consistency? And that's an intriguing question, right? Because UAB certainly been incredibly successful since they returned two conference titles, uh, been in the running for uh, the CUSA title very closely in the other years as well. Um, and, you know, anytime you get compared to Alabama and what Nick Saban's built, that's one way to do it, I guess. I mean, that's certainly not a what's the opposite of a that's certainly not a complaint, I guess. But I don't know. I guess they have a long way to go before you start making those kind of comparisons. But I will say Bill Clark is building a very consistent model. And even with, you know, the kind of the coach turnover as the guys who learn under him move on to bigger and better opportunities, uh, the expectations for this team remain very high. And that's a testament to the system that he's built and the culture that he's built. So I don't know. I mean, I think Bill Clark's still a young guy. He's got a long way to go before we start comparing him to somebody like Nick Saban. But he's absolutely on the right track. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting question by Broback there. And when we talk about Alabama light, look, um, UAB's had a lot of success. 
And I can see where Broback draws a comparison in terms of, you know, it's not apples to apples, but if you want to sit there and talk about the fact of, you know, the fact that they've won Conference USA X amount of times since they've been back, yeah, I do think there's some merit to that. Now, again, comparing Nick Saban and Bill Clark, I don't necessarily think anyone's doing that, but listen, you know, Nick Saban was at, what was he, at Akron? And then was at Michigan State before um, being at Alabama, before LSU and Alabama. So everyone's got to start somewhere. And I, I guess I'll say this. What's been most impressive in my mind is the fact that they've been able to consistent, consistently excuse me, attract talent that fits their system and fits their culture, right? Especially in today's college football environment where, you know, we'll talk about on this podcast and future podcasts. It's hard to maintain success. Can look at the program I cover in FIU. <laughs> you know, my first two years there was 17, the first two years covering the program, 17 wins. The last three, it's been seven wins combined. So it's, I think that in my mind, Joe, um, is the first thing that really, in the, the first and most emphatic thing that jumps out to me is just the fact he's been able to maintain that level of success where the program is not dipped. That in itself, I don't care if you're P5, G5, SEC, CUSA, whatever. Um, that is pretty analogous to what Nick Saban has going on in Alabama. And that's a credit to Bill Clark and the staff and the culture they built. Yeah, totally. And I think the here's the important distinction between UAB and a lot of other G5s, I think. It's altogether pretty rare to have a G5 program have the same head coach and well, have the same head coach who's had success for as long as they've had Bill Clark. Typically when you see a G5 coach have success, they leave for a bigger opportunity or, or something like that. If they lose, they get fired. Whereas with Bill Clark, due to a number of factors, but he's been at UAB for, um, I believe it was 2022 now. So about eight years, if, if not more, is that right? In the eight years? Yeah, because remember, he was there before the the shutdown. So, yes, I, I, I remember yeah. correct. I believe it is 2014. Yeah, so, like, that's a huge piece in order to build consistency and build a, build a culture just in general, which is how you establish, like, winning consistently. You have to build that culture first. And Bill Clark has had the opportunity to do that, and he stayed long enough to this point that, like, it, it makes sense. I think the... Uh, obviously, it's a very, you know, again, to your point, not apples to apples, but I can kind of see where he's coming from here. All right. Uh, another question from Mr. Brobeck. Should we expect UTEP to be solid again? Here's my take. For their sake, I hope so. Uh, they just reached a bowl game for the first time in a long time, and they gave Dana Dimmel an extension. And uh, they did lose a key piece in Jacob Cowing. Uh, didn't lose too much else, thankfully. But, you know, I don't think they have the toughest schedule when you compare it to like other G5 teams, they do have uh, Oklahoma in week two. That's obviously going to be a tough one. Uh, they got to host Boise state, a team they lost to by three or four scores last season. Um, but I think at least reaching another bowl game is definitely obtainable again for them. If they, you know, continue a lot of the habits um, that they picked up last year, uh, we we should have you know a lot of the same pieces in that offense minus cowing, uh, some good pieces in the defense as well. So I I think they can. And again, if they come back and just completely fall on their face, like I think it's going to be another instance of giving someone an ex, uh, a big contract extension a little bit too soon in college football. 
But again, I think they definitely can. We'll see if they do. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the schedule. And as you mentioned, right, you know, the big piece they lose is Jacob Cowing. And we had Dan and Demelon who did a great job explaining that situation. So really appreciate Coach Demo for coming on and, and talking about that. But UNT, to me, that's very much a winnable game. Oklahoma, and take that as a loss. Uh, New Mexico State, New Mexico, very much winnable. Boise, probably a loss. Then you go from there at the meet of it is CUSA. And in my mind, I don't see a game that's completely out of reach outside of maybe the UTSA game. Of course, that depends on you know how UTSA is able to bounce back after losing the players. Not that I think that the Roadrunners won't be in the thick of things, but and listen, I, I wish I had some wood to knock on here. I don't want to speak this into, into existence, but uh, Frank Harris has done an excellent job. He's been healthy the past, you know, year and change. Obviously, that hasn't always been the case for his career. So, you know, that's another uh, variable there. That could be a toss-up game. But in my mind, I mean, we've had various um, people from the UTEP program. I think we've had Adrian Bradas, we've had Steve Kalpowitz on and others who uh, talked about the development of quarterback, you know, uh, Gavin Hardison. And in my mind, that's going to be the thing, Joe. This is year two in this offense. The completion percentage, it has to go up. It's still around that 53, 54, 55% range. How will that be affected by losing a guy like Jacob Cowan? We'll see. But that last year, I think, was that year where he said, all right, I put everything together. 18 touchdowns, 13 picks, uh, believe almost 3,000 yards. Probably had a shade over 3,000 yards. So that'll be interesting. Remember, they did everything they did last year without a healthy Deion Hankins. Deion Hankins was banged up uh, throughout last season. Ronald Awad was the number one back. So that in itself, you know, you get Deion Hankins back. That, in my mind, is going to be interesting. You pair him with Ronald Awat. You got a good one-two punch there that, you know, maybe they lean on that running game just a little bit more and, and, and kind of – I don't want to use the phrase game manager. I feel like we've done that a lot with Gavin Hardison, but just allow him to make the plays that are there, right? So we'll see. But in my mind, uh, to back to Broback's question, listen, I, I, and I don't want to sound repetitive, Joe, so let's just bl- put a blanket statement this way. UTSA, UAB, in my mind – those are the two teams who are a cut above the rest in this league. Everything else is a crapshoot. That's just my opinion. 100% agree. The West is once again going to be fun this year. All right. This next question, I understand the first part. And when do we see the uptick in overall talent at the schools departing CUSA for the American? I don't understand the second part. Will the slight increase in those coupled with a slight decrease for stagnant schools polarize the conferences even more in 2022. So is he asking if like the divide, like the divide between AAC and or between CUSA and the other G fives is going to become even more noticeable. Is that like, is that what he's asking? Yeah. Can you read that question again? Cause even as you read it, I'm trying to like figure okay. it out Sorry, one more time. Yeah, here I'm going to, I'm going to post it in the, the dial pad chat here. Came from our friend, the drunk doctor, the the UAB fan. Are you UAB? Okay. I, I I guess what I'm taking from this question is, some conferences got a little more top heavy, and then some conferences got a little less top heavy. Mm-hmm. So for the stagnant schools, will that polarize the conferences even more? I, I look. I'm going to take a shot at it. Right. I'll just say this. Yeah. Kind of piggybacking off of what I said in my last answer, I think. And listen, ODU, obviously last year, six and six, six and seven, but that's a program that's on the rise, in my opinion. So they, you know, were trending in the right direction. Um, I think losing Southern Miss, okay, again, they obviously are rebuilding. But with that being said, 
still a program that that can challenge and, and do some things. And then you have Marshall. In my mind, Joe, especially for those teams in the in what was the East, and of course we don't have divisions anymore, right? But in what was the East, if you were a Western Kentucky, a Florida Atlantic, um, a Charlotte, right, and you were consistently having to compete with Marshall, right, and that was your your, your tough competition, they're gone. So I think you remove them from this conference. And like I said, UAB and UTSA are the only teams I see that if you just want to going into the year, clear cut seem to be head and shoulders above the rest. Everyone else is kind of a crapshoot. So I guess, you know, uh, take it to the other conferences. It's very interesting to see what happens with that, uh, that loaded. I think that's what Joe, the Sunbelt East, I believe. Um, Whatever conference, whatever Sunbelt division that Marshall joined, I, that one's clearly loaded, right? So that gets really interesting. I think it's Marshall, Coastal, um, a lot of those teams. So that could be super interesting because you're going to have some good programs there that, you know, that could be one of the better divisions in all of Group of Five football. I saw Chris Vanini say that if he just took that division alone, it could probably be one of the best G5 conferences, uh, you know, standalone. And in the American, of course, we don't have, you know, any teams that have left yet. So I guess if you, if you, Again, spin it forward. And maybe, Joe, that's just a byproduct of, of realignment. It's naturally going to be the better teams that are taken. So when we look at the American, um, losing UCF, losing Cincy, yeah, I mean, that certainly is going to allow for some of these teams that are in Conference USA when they make the jump. Um, and I even look at a program like USF that has struggled for the past few years. You get UCF out of the way, you get Cincy out of the way, then, you know, maybe you're in the thick of things again. Yeah, there is definitely going to be a power grab in the new American for sure. And there's going to be a somewhat of a power grab uh, in CUSA too. Now that um, you know, some of the, like the, the programs that are, have been winning pretty consistently for the last couple of years are gone. Um, to answer the second part of that, when do we see the uptick in overall talent at the schools moving from CUSA to the American uh, you know, I think the the big jump is going to be after two years. Um, once you know the those classes in uh, the recruiting classes coming out of like twenty twenty four through twenty twenty six, let's say, uh, start seeing those teams really start to reap the benefits of the ESPN media deal, right? Like as of now, we we've talked ad nauseum. CUSA's media deal is not good. So it's it's genuinely pretty hard if you are not a diehard to like find your team's game every week. But with the media deal that the American has, that that problem's going to go away. So that's going to lead to much more brand exposure and and much more, I think, just an overall increase in just fans and people paying attention to those teams that are jumping to the American in general. So I think that I think it's going to be a couple of years before we see like the big jumps. But you know, to your point, UAB and UTSA kind of are already taking those steps to play at the level that I think folks expect out of, you know, the quote unquote P6 at this point. All right, let's move on to a Charlotte question. Uh, coming off back-to-back losing seasons, what should the expectation be for Will Healy in year four at Charlotte? You know, we talked to Hunter Bailey about this a little bit, um, and there definitely needs to be an improvement. Again, the the first like their non-con schedule, I'll just say, is pretty brutal. With they have Maryland at home. Uh, this is a program that just got well. Charlotte is a program that just got their first uh, P five win last year against Duke, which was also at home. Uh, Georgia State, who is uh, hot and cold, but when they're hot, they're hot. 
Um, and then they got to play at South Carolina too. Obviously, they really need to step up the run defense. Thankfully, uh, I don't. I don't think any of those three teams that I just mentioned really have a running attack that immediately, you know, strikes fear into the hearts of men or anything like that. Um, but I think the the expectation for Will Healy should definitely be bowl game. Um, I think they definitely need to reach the bowl game in order to kind of quiet the doubters um, and you know kind of quiet the the. Uh, folks who are getting a little impatient uh, coming off of just the the momentum that Charlotte has uh, built up for themselves. Um, so the end of last season was certainly disappointing, and I think they need to bounce back. Yeah, no, I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think there have been some people who looked at Will Healy and had questions about, okay, you know, he's a rah-rah guy, you know, very, very um, marketable, excitable, has a brand to himself. But what does that manifest itself when you look at his record, right? Now, that record is incomplete. When you look at what Austin P was, they took them over. They were horrible. They, you know, 0-11 his first year, and they weren't much better prior to him. He gets them to eight wins, which was seemingly a miracle, and gets them back to another um, almost 500 year before he takes over the Charlotte gig. Charlotte, when he took over in 2019, you know, coming from Brad Lambert, that program that it seemed just be kind of on the cusp, just couldn't really put things together. He gets them to seven wins in the Bahamas Bowl, right? Now, of course, part of that comes with guys like Benny LeMay, Alex Highsmith, Nate Davis, others, right? So you got to take into account, he's still trying to play some of those guys. And we've talked about it on this podcast. The defense is certainly going to be something, defense and special teams, going to be something to keep an eye on. But you can't run from your record, right? You know, Will Healy has a 14-17 and 17 record at Charlotte, 27-38 uh, overall. I personally think he's a better football coach than, again, that record will say, the myriad of reasons as I laid out for that record. In terms of the expectation, yeah, you, you got to get back to a bowl game. I, I don't think I'm just, you know, giving it the eye test. I'm staring at it right here. If you go from seven, six, two and four, five and seven, if you get another five and seven, then Joe, and I'm, I'm asking this in the form of a question, you almost feel like you're back in that latter part of the Brad Lambert era, right? I don't know that it's that bad, but because <laughs> um, that was those were some dark times for that program. But it's I mean, I'll just say again, it's just disappointing. Like, I think the people were riding so high on like what Will Healy, like just the momentum that Will Haley was able to do when he came in, uh, when he got hired from Austin P, And for it to die so quickly, if they don't perform to expectations this year will be uh, definitely a bummer. Um, because I think he, based on our conversations with him, he seems like a, a great guy and a guy who genuinely understands, like, you know, just the, the character component of coaching. So, but again, the way this business works, if you don't get results in the field, then you're not going to stick around very long. No, I mean, again, all all fair points on, on your end. Uh, I'll just sum it up like this. You talk about that non-con schedule with Maryland, South Carolina, definitely tough games. Even Georgia State going to be tough. Um, they should be William. Excuse me. They should be William and Mary opening up with FAU. Listen, that's going to be a, a a bit of a, a litmus test for both teams right there to see in what direction their uh, their seasons can head in. But like I said, you, you get past and it, they get UAB, so that's tough. But you get past the rest of the schedule, and I, I look at FIU, Rice, Western Middle, Louisiana Tech. None of those teams, in my mind, do I think Charlotte has significantly less talent than. So um, yeah, I mean. In my mind, they should be able to get six. Hopefully so, for Will Healy's sake. All right, last question from the mailbag for CUSA this week. Any chance CUSA goes for a leadership change and a rebrand? Give my thoughts real quick on this one. Uh, rebrands, 
Uh, probably not, just because I, I get that it's a, a completely different looking conference. But then again, CUSA has changed so much just in the couple of decades that it's been around. I don't really think a rebrand at this point is going to do them all that much good. And plus, like the people who would really handle that side of things, you look at the people within CUSA's league office who would handle that sort of thing. There's a not nearly as many of them as the uneducated fan thinks there are, and they are already overworked as it is and underpaid, in my opinion. I don't think like the process doesn't necessarily warrant the product, if that makes sense. It's it's a lot of work for not that much reward. If they ended up going with a rebrand, um, change in leadership, I also don't think that's going to happen. Barring a decision from Commissioner McLeod of her own volition to step away. The only way really that a commissioner can be uh, taken out of their position from a conference is if the university presidents come to that conclusion and, you know, make, take the steps to make that happen. The teams from the Sunbelt or the, the teams that left to the Sunbelt, Marshall, Old Dominion, Southern Miss, um, they already left. There's no real reason. I like, you know, they, they left the teams that are heading to the American, don't really see why they would really put up a fight for that if they're already leaving. And the teams that remain um, don't really see why they would necessarily want to rock the boat when they're going to get uh, some much needed resource in the buyout money from uh, these schools or not buyout money is the wrong word, but the exit fees that uh, the departing schools are going to pay. And the schools that are coming in in New Mexico state, Sam Houston state Liberty you know, again, that that would be <laughs> that'd be that'd be messed up on their part. That would be, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like a dramatic that'd be that'd be like some Breaking Bad type moves for to come in and then immediately like bite the hand that feeds. You know what I mean? So that I don't think there's going to be really any shift in leadership in Conference USA for the foreseeable future, unless again, Judy McLeod decides, you know, I'm going to retire or something to that effect. I'm really glad you mentioned all the points you did because I don't really have too much to add outside of that. I think some people may not understand a conference commissioner similar to the role of an NFL or sports league commissioner, professional sports league commissioner, who they answer to, uh, who they air quotes work for. Uh, that is the schools themselves. So you nailed that point. And, and listen, I mean, you can write your hate mail to at uh, Eric C. Henry underscore on this one. I have been of the belief that, look, you cannot like many of the decisions that have been made and some of the things that have happened with Conference USA. But as someone who was attending the University of Central Florida in 2013, 2012, 2013, once uh, the what I call the final incarnation of CUSA, you know, came about, chill, there wasn't <laughs> the TV deal is what it is. All right. Like that we all can complain about. That aside, there wasn't really much else to go that they did the best they could in my mind um when i see people talk about you know the, how the league is spread in other words that that just was the circumstances how it was um and what was available at the time so in my mind what i really think would do conference usa best is a little more and i and and joe i'm curious uh, your thoughts on this i'm passing to you in form of a question i think a little more parody would do conference usa well i think one of the things that makes the mac exciting now sure a lot of those universities, I even covered one of them, you know, my first job out of college was you know, covering Northern Illinois football and, and, and of course, the high school uh, ranks in Chicago, but also covered Northern Illinois football. 
yes, a lot of those schools are within that nicely, neatly packed area there in the Midwest. And, you know, they're all kind of within driving distance, haha, whatever, whatever. But I, I hate to break it to you, um, people who may not know this. What that many people showed up to DeKalb, Illinois on a Thursday night when it's like 30 degrees outside, you know? Um, so some of the issues that the MAC has uh, and had and has, Conference USA, you can say the same thing about them, but everyone looks at the MAC as like Maction because they're on ESPN. And, and I get it, right? It's it's broader exposure. That, that's why I said the TV deal, you can make of it what it is. But I think what would do this league best is more parity, you know? It, it, when you go back and look at the league winners, it's been a lot of Western Kentuckys and Marshalls and and things of that nature, right? If you can kind of mix it up and not necessarily have to have different winners, but if you just get more exciting football, I think that makes a difference. And I do think just by a byproduct of the teams they ended up with, you know, FAU and FIU, while FAU's won this league twice, the majority of the time they were in the league, they were not a contender. FIU's never won the league and quite frankly have struggled. <laughs> uh, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but they've struggled since they've their inception to football. You know, only one, two, three, four winning records, if members are correct, three, two under Butch Davis, should be two under Mario Cristobal in 20 years. So they never came to fruition as far as being a, a viable competitor, right? Um, some of the Texas teams have been hit or miss. So, Joe, I'm curious your thoughts. Like, don't you think what could really would be better than a rebrand is just more viable, more parity, more exciting football? And, and, and does, I don't mean exciting in terms of, you know, 60 point games, that's been closer games all the way around. I mean, I think the concept of parody is great. I think um, if with kind of the, the new shape that the conference has taken with the teams leaving and the teams coming in, it's not exactly clear who the front runner is going to be immediately. So that creates a point of intrigue for sure. Creates an interesting storyline. Again, you know, I think the issue comes down to, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound? And again, that's the media deal, which we've beat into the ground. But purely from an on-field product standpoint, yeah, I think the, the CUSA product is going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see who comes, uh, who comes through in terms of the clear leader in the conference in terms of talent after we see, you know, the UABs and UTSAs and the Marshalls and, and whatnot leave because – you know, there's no there's no real um, favorite amongst those folks, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, Joe, I'll just run it down to you really quick. Since the what I call, you know, the final incarnation of Conference USA when that opened in 2013, Marshall's appeared in one, two, three, uh, three title games. They've won one. Western Kentucky has appeared in one, two, three. They've won two. Uh, Florida Atlantic obviously appeared in one and appeared in and won two. UAB uh, appeared in two, appeared in three and have won two. So, you know, it, it's been, and even you can look at some of the losers here. Uh, um, Louisiana Tech has appeared in the title game twice as well. So it's been, a, you know, the teams that have been at the top have been at the top. <laughs> That's kind of what it's been. So I think it will be interesting to see how, how things shake out going forward. Yeah, apparently my dog agrees. I don't know if you can hear that in the background as he barks in recognition, I guess. Um, all right, with that, moving through the mailbag segment. And this might be an asshole to cut you off here. Uh, is your dog, wait a minute, both you and your wife went to Louisville, correct? Uh, yeah, I went to Louisville for my undergrad. My wife went to Louisville for her graduate education. She went to Western for her undergraduate education. Uh, okay, so, so is your dog a hilltopper or a cardinal? You know, 
Uh, I mean, he's a Cardinal probably. There's more, there's more Louisville degrees in this house than there are Western degrees probably. But at the same time, we live out in Oregon and I don't think he, listen, our, our cat is the brains of our pets. And even then that's not saying much. So I don't think my dog really understand what birds are. Just curious. That's all. I just need to know. That's all. (laughs) I'm still laughing at that photo that the Western football team account posted during the Kentucky Derby with um big red on the back of that horse that i don't know why that tickled me so much but the just the idea of big red like trying to do regular things is very silly to me you're a, you're a big red sycophant that's what it is <laughs> sycophant super fan there's a fine line all right let's let's talk about some nil stuff um ncaa released a uh some official guidance uh, the NCAA Board of Directors did to D1 membership regarding uh, NIL collectives and booster rules. Um, the Athletic tweeted it out shortly after they sent it out. There's there's not a ton that's abundantly clear, and it's not a concrete policy, right? Um, basically, uh, I'll just read these these first couple sentences here. During its February 2022 meeting, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors charged the NCAA Division I Council with considering how name, image, and likeness is affecting student-athletes, including influence on student school choice and transfer, the impact on academics, and student mental health. As an additional measure, without impacting the positive NIL experiences that students are experiencing, the board noted that the council may consider adjustments that could be appropriately made to the interim NIL policy or to NCAA rules. The board requested that the council provide an initial report in April 22 and a final report with potential recommendations for action in June 2022. So we're going to get some more recommendations uh, probably in the next month or so. Eric, I know you've been having a lot of conversations outside of just the ones that we've had with coaches on this podcast. Um, You've been having those same conversations with uh, administrators and, and athletic directors from around the G5. And I'm curious, based on those conversations, what they have yielded and how they may have, you know, influenced the the new guidelines that the NCAA is considering here. Yeah, it's pretty simple, Joe. And I, I am definitely curious your take on this. I am not, I'm, I'm not saying this with any type of shade or any type of connotation. This just is overwhelmingly the feeling that I've gotten, and I'm not going to divulge who I spoke to, but the the overwhelming feeling from people I have spoken to, which is, the dangerous thing about collectives, and and maybe that's something more of a concern at the P5 level than G5 level, but it's something that is on the minds of athletic directors and administrators alike is, what do I tell, especially at the G5 level, when you probably only have, what, Joe, maybe four or five, and that's being, being a little extra in terms of big-time donors who will consistently donate all the time. What do I tell them when we have a collective and they usually donate 25 grand or 30 grand a, a year this you know during the summer and whatnot and the collective comes and I, they're like hey so i'm usually give my 30 grand but do i give 15 grand to the collective and 15 grand to the school that's that's my 30 right and these people are like no wait a minute hang on we don't get anything from the collective the collective goes to the players and in my mind joe that is going to be the biggest um I don't want to say bargaining chip, but that's going to be the thing that spurs these these athletic directors, administrators, and others, and quite frankly, the NCAA into action. It's it's tricky, you know. 
anyone who listens to this podcast knows how we feel. We are very pro player in terms of NIL and being able to market themselves. I want to make this clear for our listeners. We're not even talking about the aspect of pay for play, right? Where in theory, you know, school X has more money and then they go recruit player X and then they, they transfer. We're just purely talking about donors who, if there's a collective and they want to, and, and Joe, we got to think, you know, I don't know if we've talked on the pot, some of the things that these collectives are, are offering, access to practices, you know, special privileges as far as, you know, suites and tailgates and access to players and things of that nature, you know, in terms of uh, special messages and, and autographs and all types of things. That's pretty damn enticing. And I'll even say it's pretty damn enticing for the low level donor. The person who can't donate 15 grand, right? Because in theory, the person who can donate 10, 15, 30 grand has enough to get their name put on the locker room or uh, forgive me, I can't remember the actual working title of the Florida Atlantic head coach right now, but that's a title that was bought by a donor um, to have that title um, precede Willie Taggart's title as head coach. The donor who wants to donate 500 bucks or 750 bucks, that's kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of your athletic department, but 750 bucks can get you uh, tier one access to practices. You know what I mean? So that has definitely been the, the feeling amongst uh, administrators and athletic directors of like, wow, um, this could very much cut into our operating budget if we already, or we already are fighting for donors as is at this level and we're having to tell them, yeah, like that, that collective thing is cool, but like, yo, that's not gonna help us build a new weight room and whatnot. So it's definitely a concern. Yeah, understandable. And based on those that uh, those folks made to you, I think the biggest thing that I am going to take away here as like, uh, what's the word? An outside observer, someone who's impartial, really, doesn't have uh, any official affiliation to any school or, or booster group or anything like that. There's got to be that sense of cooperation between the university and between these NIL collectives and have them understand like, here's what's beneficial for us. Here's what's actually going to help the program and help the school advance. Um, and there, there's got to be a healthy working relationship there because at the end of the day, if those two groups are competing against one another, then that's what's going to ultimately negatively affect these programs. If they can kind of come to an understanding of like, here are the types of donors that are going to be more that are, are going to be extremely beneficial to the school so that we can accomplish the kind of program or the kind of projects that we want to your point, weight rooms, um, you know, like larger capital projects, that sort of thing. Whereas with NIL collectives, there's definitely that opportunity there to bring in some of these smaller donors, but a lot of them and get the players, you know, that cash, um, get them those kind of business opportunities. And for those donors who might only have, you know, uh, a, a number within, you know, three figures to donate to their favorite program, they can still get a nice little reward. Um, so I think there's definitely potential there for those two groups to find a happy medium and do what's best for their program. But they got to start having those conversations now. Yeah, no, absolutely. All great points you make there. And just really quick, just to clarify a point I was making in terms of, you know, a donor donating something in their name on it. And I said the title of, of Florida Atlantic's head coach, uh, Willie Taggart is the Haggerty family head football coach at Florida Atlantic. Uh, the reason that being uh, Michael and Michelle Haggerty donated $2.5 million to FAU Athletics. So what comes to that is uh, the name to the head football coach position in perpetuity. So 
Um, that's the thing that I mean is like, if you're the Haggerty family, sure. Yeah. You, you can, you can, you can uh, donate to the, the school and the collective all you want. But like you mentioned, it, it's those lower level donors. People are going to donate 500 bucks, 750 bucks, a thousand bucks. And those things add up. Those donors add up. Um, it'll be interesting to see because I'm, I, I listen, I have no stake in the game. Clearly I don't donate to any school. Uh, it includes my own alma mater. Um, but I, I, I can't help, but think, yeah, it'd be pretty damn enticing you tell me my thousand dollars is just going to get me a thousand bucks and a little, you know, thank you letter from the AD versus my thousand bucks gets me, you know, Tuesday morning. I'm, I'm you know, not going to work till noon. So I'm just going to stop by practice. <laughs> Which one of those do you take? Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is a you know, it's something like pro sports have those kind of opportunities where like you can go out and like sell these like you know, premium season ticket packages that get you that kind of access and, and get you, you know, those sort of things. Um, and for colleges and for NIL collectives, this is kind of an opportunity for those to, I mean, they definitely already had that, those kind of opportunities, but this is a different way to do it that could be very beneficial to everybody if they execute it right. But, you know, again, they have to execute it right and not let uh, uh, greed get in the way, I guess. But, you know, easier said than done sometimes. I would definitely donate a thousand bucks if it meant like, um, you know, me and me and my family could like go see a practice, uh, you know, a, a couple times a season, that sort of thing. Shake some hands, maybe, you know, let the kids get some autographs, that sort of thing. I think like I think that's a cool opportunity. I think that's cool, honestly. No, Joe, I mean, listen, we can't emphasize this point enough. I think you just hit the nail on the head right there. I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to steer anybody in one direction, one way or the other. But I, I can't imagine the layperson is going to choose, you know, hey, I know my money went to that new set of dumbbells or, hey, I'm going to go post up at football practice or basketball practice and watch the kids and shake some hands and get some pictures. And it's a, a cool event for the family. Like I, 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 <laughs> I can't see who's not choosing that. So great point on your part. As these developments kind of continue to take shape over the next six weeks or month or so, I'm sure we'll have much more to talk about in the realm of NIL. But for now, we'll go ahead and wrap up this edition of the Underdog Podcast. Uh, on the next episode, it's going to be kind of a similar episode, but we are going to take some Sunbelt questions. So make sure you tune in for that. Uh, tune in like it's a radio. Uh, just click the button on your computer, <laughs> right? Like that's how podcasts work now. But anyway, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, as we wrap up, want to go ahead and encourage you all to please leave a review on your platform of choice. That is ultimately what's going to help make the show grow, as uh, Eric said on on, uh, one of our more recent episodes and uh, of course follow us on twitter at eric c henry underscore at j-o-e-h-i-o underscore uh get me more followers so that i can be verified and eric will stop looking down on me um and uh at underdog dynasty on twitter as well and uh we'll have much more fun g5 football content for you as we go along throughout the off season happy football watching everybody we'll talk to you very verified soon. joe <laughs> let's start the movement